Adair Amadio, thank you so much You're for so joining welcome. me today. It has been – I graduated in 1998. You were a year, a year older than me or two yeah, years older than me? a year. A year. I graduated in 97. Yeah. It's amazing. When, when you're in high school, the people who are a year ahead of you just like – I felt like you were like 30 years older than me. Like – well, not you didn't look 30 years older. I'm just saying it like it was you were the upperclassman like Liz right. Lloyd. Sure. They were like 50 years older than me. Like sure. everybody – you know. So anyway, uh, but we were in high school marching band together and in a concert sure. band and, and in the whole the whole nine yards there. Um, I really enjoy talking to folks who, you know, who I know, but also haven't seen in a long time and, and get to, uh, to get caught up. But I think the impetus for you and I chatting today was a post I posted, I think, where I was sort of, um, being a little snippy about, you know, people reaching out to talk to me or whatever. Um, but mainly those are sort of like fishing expeditions for me. Like I really am just curious who, who's going to, who's going to poke their head up and you did. And I'm grateful for that. Um, but, uh, why don't we start a little bit, like, take me back to like baby Adair that I really, I mean, I know you as high school Adair and, um, my mom was the uniform Nazi. Like there was a whole, there was, there's the whole ecosystem there that we can get to, but, um, So Can you much. take me back to like baby Adair and like what, what got you? And then we'll talk about what it is you do now for a living. But like, what? Tell me a little bit more about yourself. Yeah. Um. So I was born and raised in Florida. So I was a transplant into Dover. When did so, you move to Dover? I didn't know that actually. Ninety two. So oh. we moved into Dover in ninety two. It was November. It was like a huge ass blizzard. <laughs> like school had been canceled for a week. Uh We're driving up 95. Um, Actually, we were the last vehicles on the turnpike before the turnpike got closed. So we're coming across West Virginia on the turnpike, and there's a trooper, a plow, my mom driving our moving truck, my grandparents driving, like, their minivan with, like, our immediate luggage and cleaning supplies, another plow, and another trooper, because we were going to get stranded. It was that that much kind of crazy weather. Well, and what... Just uh, the first thing that comes to mind for me is like the red flags of people from Florida moving to Ohio. Like you should have just turned around and gone back. <laughs> like like yeah, nothing. Was, like, did you guys have alarm bells going off in your yeah. head as this was happening? So my mom grew up coming to Dover when she was little because my grandfather was originally from Circleville, okay. and his brother, his only brother, had married um, a Turnabeny mm-hmm. or Turnabeny. A Turnabeny is a a Turnabeny is not a like. Is not a like a like an infrastructure or anything. Right. It's it, it's a like person. A That's Wait a family a name. Maybe it was Tenerello. <laughs> no, yeah, it was Tenerello. I'm I'm mistaken. So he married a little lady, um, who's like their family had had a market downtown. A little Italian family he had married in. They had no children. My mom grew up coming to Dover in the summers and like playing with all of these local names that you know, like the Petricolas and people on Fifth Street and Chestnut Street and around mm-hmm. St. Joe's. And, like, they always wanted her to come here. Well, like, later on in life, her brother moves here. So, like, I grew up coming from Florida to Dover for summer vacations for the bulk of my childhood. Said no one ever in the history of humanity. (laughs) And I love Dover. We were automatically, we were, like, (laughs) out the gate, I was already, like, over under, right? Because we were coming to Dover from, like, Orlando, Um, but my dad had, um, we had, I was born in like Fort Lauderdale, Southern Florida. We had moved to Orlando in 85 
because my dad helped open the Grand Floridian at Disney World when they opened the Grand Floridian Hotel. Um, my dad was in like restaurant work his entire life mm-hmm. as an Italian immigrant. He hated working for Disney in the 80s because food at Disney in the 80s was very like cafeteria style. It was not mm-hmm. the gourmet, like come and eat yourself stupid and like <laughs> Epcot now. Yeah. The way that it is. It's kind of like a cruise ship vibe now. Like, like Very once much you're so. in the door, you can eat whatever you want. Whatever. Like, you want sake, glazed, short ribs? Sure. Come to Japan. Like, the whole nine. Yeah. Um, so if we would have stayed in Orlando, I would have graduated with 2,000 students in my graduating class alone. Whoa. Like, in our neighborhood, my brother and I were the only kids for, like, 10 blocks in any direction. Like, yeah, all you, of our... What did you have at Dover? It was like 190 people in your class. Actually, no, we were like one of, we had like two, we were one of the largest classes Mm. in like 10 or 20 years by the time. All the, all those interlopers from Florida moving up. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Right. Um, so we moved because my dad took a job, um, at a restaurant in Canton that was, Mm. he was going to help them get started as a startup. And like, all right, we'll move the kids. They'll have community. They'll be with kids their own age. And then you come in as an outsider to Dover, where not only have every kid been together since kindergarten, like their parents have been together since kindergarten, their grant. So it was very hard to move in as an outsider from like a huge, large, like killer school system, killer musical program, all of this stuff where it you were expected to be a face that changed because you might never see the same kid again. Like Lockheed Martin was there. Disney. So many, many major corporations were there. People changed all the time Mm -hmm. to then you come to a place where it's like "Mm, at lunch, you can only eat with us. If one of us is out sick because you can't put tables together. (laughs) Oh my God. Adair. It was like, (laughs) I came from Florida where like the cafeteria was like these long bench tables with like the round seats. So you could eat lunch with 40 people, like all crowded together to now it's just little tables of four. I'm sorry to interrupt, but this is, this is like, um, uh, one of the is guys. Mind blowing? Pro- is it like, <laughs> well, I mean, mind blowing and it breaks my heart a little bit. Um, one of the guys in so percussion, Adam Slowinski, he is a, um, he moved a lot as a kid too. His dad was in, in the restaurant in- industry and, and as well. And he was just moving a lot. Um, but he talked a lot, like when you ask him where he's from, he's like, I'm from Alpharetta, Georgia, Denver, Colorado, Boston, Massachusetts. Like, yeah, he talked a lot about, you know, going to a school district and and actually purposely failing classes because it was the only way he could make friends. Like, like it was the way to be cool, you know? And so like, and Adam's like one of the smartest people I know, like the idea that he would purposely fail a class is beyond me. But like, what, what, I never had that experience. I mean, I'm fortunate in, in some respects that my parents decided to just like, you are going to, I think I went to kindergarten in Strasburg, but then, cause my mom taught there. Um, Great. but then after that I was in Dover school districts my entire life and it, it didn't dawn on me until later in life how I don't want to say crucial because it's not like, it's not like, you know, your life is worse because you moved around. Like it's just no. a different thing, but there were definite differences. I never clocked the new people who came in. I never clocked that they were having a hard time. I was just like a dare's yeah. here. Great. You know, yeah. like, well, and know. we were, I was just, so when we moved in, in November, I remember doing testing at Dover and the guidance counselor at the time was like, um, yeah, Adair is on a sophomore level from like what I was doing through like Florida's uh, educational program and stuff. Like mm-hmm. I was going to the high school in eighth grade 
to take French class that was taught entirely in French. Mm. And then I come to Dover and God love our French teacher who I will not mention by name and like, you know, cast shade on him. But it was like, oh, let's talk about bathrooms and culture. And oh, no one, everyone wants to just openly cheat on the test and no one can actually Mm. speak French. Um, And my mom was stuck in a really hard position because it was like, do I put a 13 year old in classes with 16 year olds, right? And put her in as a sophomore and she only has a two year college or high school experience in Dover, or do I keep her with her chronological age classmates? And then it'd be stuff that I'd already seen. And then on a musical level in Florida, I started on the oboe at the age of nine. Like I was a, I was like summer of fourth grade coming into fifth grade. Mm -hmm. I'd only ever played the oboe. So then I get to like, you know, eighth grade band, January of 1993. And I'm sitting next to a student who's only had the instrument for six months. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm obviously going to sound different. My tone, my sound, like all that's going to be different. Mm -hmm. And so like, I remember, I remember one day that I was in band rehearsal and it was like one of the very first days and I was completely misreading the key signature and I'm playing B natural instead of B flat. And Joan Wenzel, who we know, like stops the band and looks over at the two oboes and goes, who can't read the key signature? And I start to say, it's my fault. And the girl next to me goes, it wasn't me, Miss Wenzel. I wasn't even playing. <laughs> right? Because like, that's so hard to give a student who's had three years on a clarinet or a flute and then go here, have an oboe. Right. Right. But like I grew up, I started in, I was nine, nine, almost 10. I was studying with the assistant chair of the Orlando symphony who was amazing. Um, He had had a dealer out of Atlanta that had like a Larray oboe in 92 for like two grand that he was like a dare needs a better instrument buy it for her. And then my parents were like, haha, we need that for the moving truck. (laughs) And so now you're in, you're in a land where like, they don't appreciate your billabong jacket. They don't appreciate your hyper color shirt. No one knows what the salty dog cafe is. And there's so much snow and ice. You fall on the marble floors at Dover high school every day of your life. And you're just kind of like, "Uh," right. And so you just kind of have to figure it out. And I'm the only, I'm the only cousin in my age, like my sibling, my brother and my cousins are all, I think my cousin, Josh graduated with you in 98, Josh Davis. He did a lot of art stuff, Okay. Um, but like everyone else was three, four, five, six years younger. So like Mm -hmm. my brother came in at fourth grade, that's a whole lot easier to kind of like slip into the mix than eighth grade and well, what, what you live in, where do you live now? Uh, I live like two blocks from Crater Stadium now. <laughs> yeah. So clearly Dover suited you well enough to make a home there and, you know, a business that we're going to get, we're going to talk about yeah. in here. Like, yeah, cow- um, I mean, cowardice, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One well, of those things. What, what is it about, what is it about, well, uh, just let me ask the dumb question. What is it about Dover that made you? decide to, you know, st- stick it out and make your roots there. I mean, cause that I, I'm, I'm everything you're saying I'm identifying with as some, like, I went the opposite route. I right. was in Dover my whole life. And then left I moved, I moved to Connecticut to go to Yale um, right. after university of Akron. And that was my first time 
outside of the state. Yeah. <laughs> really, in terms of like living outside of the state in a new yeah. culture. And I remember being horrified, like being like, who, why are you, what's a flyover state? What are you talking about? Like, and just culturally, then I moved to New York and it was like, oh my God, like what, what is wrong with all of you people? And it, it took a second to adjust. And I'm, and now I've made my home in New York, not yeah. because I don't like Dover, but like, right. but again, I'm curious. You can't get a bagel. You can't. There's so much you can't do in Dover, but yet there's so much you can do. Um, I think for me, the reason why the roots got put down as as we progressed and I graduated, mm-hmm. um, my mom was a really talented interior designer and she owned a business. And because she is who she is and she had like childhood roots to Dover, she knew a lot of people and it was easier for her to like come in. And then from her working environment, you know, all of a sudden people that you knew before, like your mom, your uncle, people like we could never go anywhere, like never go anywhere because we could only take like two steps and she or my uncle would see someone that they know and we'd have to stop and stand and talk. Mm-hmm. And then we take two steps and we'd find someone else and do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so after college for me, like I actually took a semester off from college when she and her business partner bought the business from like the previous owner, because God love my mom. Like my parents' marriage ended and she was raising us on like four fifteen an hour and like doing amazing things. But mm-hmm. through her talent, she was able to buy the business that she had helped build. And so then I felt a lot of responsibility mm-hmm. to come home and like help protect that and help that function. Right. And work in the family business. And then we come through like the recession of 08, 09. And I'm like, well, I've done all this. And, you know, once you come back home and you reconnect with people that are in their, you know, early twenties, I think I went to 13 weddings one summer. And by the next year there were like eight or nine baby. Right. So for a while I had a cluster of friends that were in the same like life space as I was, but they all got married and started having kids. And then I had a business and then I was like, well, I'm just going to double down on having this business And then, um, they closed the design shop and my mom, like my mom's 75, like she'll be 76 in a couple in a week, something like she's still working, even though we don't, she doesn't have like a storefront and overhead and inventory, but then it was like, all right, my job is clearly just to be an entrepreneur and put roots in and build a brick and mortar. But in this community, it is so hard to build something from scratch if you're not, already pre-established or the community at large hasn't decided that they're going to like let you in. And so I did that for like 12 years. Where was the brick, where was the brick and mortar? Uh, Right down. So my mom, my mom had owned second street interiors, which was in the Moomaw furniture building there Mm -hmm. on the corner of uh, Walnut and second street. Mm -hmm. And, um, her business partner ended up passing away tragically, but they had sold the building. But my shop was inside the building that I had worked in since I was 16. Mm. Like when I closed the building last year, when I closed the shop last year, I had literally had an office or a workspace in every corner of the building. I'd been in that building for 20, almost 30 years. Cause my mom started working in that building by 94, mm-hmm. you know, and I had just come to the realization that like I had wanted to close it pre pandemic. I had wanted to make the moves. I was just too terrified to actually like pull the trigger. Mm -hmm. And then when major life change happens and you're like, 
F it, like flip the tables, burn the bridges, stop begging people to like you, you know, and then you're like, all right, how can I pivot it? And what can I do with what my career is? And then what freedom does that give me to choose where it is that I want to be? Right. But then when you've been in a community for 30 years, like November will be 30 years, like, you know, now I'm like, Hey, I think I want to move. And my mom's like, you're gonna you're gonna leave me you're gonna leave this really great apartment you're gonna leave the cost of living so great because now now it's safety as opposed to like the world's wide open and go and chase it so yeah well that's i mean as someone i mean i've i'm i didn't exactly have to build a brick and mortar but i i do empathize with the the um the feeling of having to like start something that doesn't exist you start it from zero to the point where people are paying attention. I mean, so percussion, that's what we do all the time is try to get concert halls to trust us and bring us back. And it's like, man, that is awful. <laughs> you know, that's, it's, it's like, it's like, trust us, trust us, please. This is, we're good at what we do. You know, um, what have, when you say the like major life event happened and you sort of flip the tables, what, uh, I'm assuming you're referencing COVID, but like what, what were the, what was the big life event? If you, if you don't mind going in, you know, if you don't oh, want to go into detail, it was heartbreak. Like, it was heartbreak, Joshua. So I'd been, yeah, I had been seeing someone um, long distance. They live in Madison, Wisconsin, where another good mutual friend of ours, Brett Williams, is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, before I ever met my ex, like I had had a pull to that city. There was just something about it. I know that sounds so weird. And you're like, no, it's a great place. I love Wisconsin. How can Madison be glamorous? It's the, absolutely the best town. Like I could do a complete hour just bragging on Madison as like the most ideal city in the Midwest. Um, <laughs> but it was a lot of like 30 years of stuff to purge is a lot. Losing your identity as a brick and mortar owner is a lot to give up to make that leap. Um, And at the end it was like, things were, things were hitting a point where like action was going to have to be taken. And we both got really scared and started like triggering the absolute life out of each other. Um, And the relationship ended. And I was like, what, what the hell have I been waiting for? Like, why am I begging? Like, why am I settling for this? Because like, other people would come into the area, artists who had lived elsewhere, people who had lived in California that were coming home to give their kids a T County Dover experience. And they were like, your storefront deserves to be in Soho. Your storefront reminds me of something I saw in Marin County. Like, why are you here? Right. But I was, I'm in Dover because my rent was cheap. Mm-hmm. Right. My rent was cheap. It was functional. I could live and work and source product here but I was putting my best out and it was just being completely like overlooked. And so people would be like, Oh my gosh, I love your shop. It's so cute. They never came in or I would participate in like a fundraiser for the local library and you're giving people chocolate and they're coming in and they're like, Oh my gosh, the shop is so cute. We need to come back here. And I would not see those people until the next year when they were coming by to get their free chocolate from their $20 donation to the library. And like, you can only, you can only grind that hard for so long before it just takes like, it just takes the soul right out of you. And like, so when my relationship ended, I had been in Madison right as 
right as COVID restrictions were hitting. So this would have been March of 2020. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm driving home and all of 80 is complete. Like it's a wasteland. Like there's no one in a toll booth. I have an easy pass, so it doesn't matter, but there's no one in a toll booth. Everything says, keep driving. Do not stop. It's like me and three trucks. Right. And cause it was like, I need to hurry up and get back to Ohio before like all, they of a sudden, all of a sudden we're now living in an M night Shyamalan movie. For real. You know? <laughs> right. And so we're like, you need to, you need to get home before they close the border of the state and you can't get in. And my mom had had cataract surgery that went horrendously and she needed care and I needed to come home and make sure that, you know, drive her back and forth. And so, yeah, so that was 2020, um, March of 2020. Um, My former partner and I, we traveled to Vermont in 2021 um, and spent like two weeks there and it was wonderful and it was really great. And I'd met um, there, I'd met his father and like, his father was like, oh, yeah, I'll be back in France by the summer. You should come over, plan for the fall. I thought life was going in a totally different direction. And, like, June 12th, ha No, it's not. Right? And so at that moment in time, it was like what? It was like a big bucket of water. Like, it felt like when I did the ASL, a, ALS challenge for your, da- in your dad's honor, like, it felt like that. Like, just a big rush of ice-cold water. And it kind of like shocked me to life. And I took this big, deep breath and I was like, what, what am I doing? Mm-hmm. And so then my, the building where I was had sold a new, a new owner bought it. I love his vision for the County. Um, and I love what he's doing in the community. And he was like, what do you want to do? And I was like, I wanted to close the business in 2020. And I was just holding on out of fear because I wanted to close it with one last Christmas, right? Before we knew the mm-hmm. pandemic was going to be what it was, I was holding on to what in my head, this expectation of what it had to look like, mm-hmm. right? If I was going to go out, I was going to go out on my terms. And right. I had finally learned that like holding on to that ideal had created so much more resistance and so much more pain for me that it was just time to let go. Because I kept saying to people, my hands can't be open for what's coming if I'm not willing to let go of what I'm holding on to. And so lots of like <laughs> therapy and shadow work and inner work and like dealing with shit, right? And all of a sudden you're a year out on the other side of it. And I traveled to Madison two more times, like in 2022, I realized that my pull to that city is not because of a relationship, but it felt a whole lot easier to justify a move mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. that if I had a relationship because mm-hmm. like in traditional Dover ways, like you're either moving away for school or a person, like you don't just, you don't just leave here. (laughs) How, how dare you think you're going to leave here? Um, um, it's like a gang. You got to get beat up if you want to leave. You You do. And like, oddly enough, I was taking friends in the city, like out for breakfast on my last full day in Madison. And we go to this little diner that my ex had introduced me to. And he's coming out of the diner as I get out of my car. And that's the first, like nearly a year to the day since like he had ended our relationship. And like, it was so surreal. But yeah, I was like completely calm. Like nothing was shaking. Like that inner sense of like knowing and coming home to myself. And so now I'm at a place where I really feel like home is home is an entity and a place that I take with me because now 
I accept me so much. I don't care if other people don't get what I do. I don't care if other people are like, you sell dead people's stuff. I, I do. I do sell dead people's stuff. That's absolutely my career. 100%. I'll own it. Um, but like, I don't, I don't squirm now when it's time to talk about that because I know what I do has a value and I know what I do has a service and well, I know that I can really do it on any scale. Well, it, it leads, I mean, I, I feel like some of the things I'm hearing you say is like the relationship thing was a big catalyst to yeah. sort of uh, break you out of a little bit of a pattern, maybe of a fear of moving, moving the business in a specific direction. All of that stuff is tracking to me as like, I'm like, yep, sounds right. That's what mm-hmm. I would do. I hear yeah. you. Go get yeah. it, girl. Like I, I know, I know, yeah. I don't. You know, I know, I don't know the the breakup thing as intimately maybe as you do. But like, right? COVID. The other thing too, like, um, the upside to COVID, if I had to find one, is that like it sort of forced your hand a little bit. Like you couldn't plan for Christmas. <laughs> you know, like just like it didn't matter what you had. Yeah. Like all of a sudden now the pressure of getting people in your store no longer exists. Yeah. You can't. Doesn't right. matter if everybody wants to come to your store in Dover; they physically are not allowed to. Well, you know? and in so that would have been March of 2020 when I was in Madison with mm-hmm. my ex for the last time, and so I came home, and by April, I had found this whole entire world where people were retailing, antique shops, dealers, vendors, collectors were dealing their goods using social media over video format. So like all of the lights here, you can't see all the can lights up ahead of me. Like this is my online studio in my basement where I go live on Facebook for a couple hours. And one of the first things, like the first time that light bulb came on is I had had these amazing paper, paperweights that were like signed by the artists. They were all hand done. They were amazing. And I think in the shop, I'd maybe been asking like 25, $30 for them. And I took them to a Facebook auction and I put them out and a lady bid $88 for choice out of some paperweights. And I was like, Oh my gosh, she bid $88. That's amazing. And then she took two. And I was like, I can do more in four hours connected to the internet and buyers in California and Delaware and Connecticut and New York and like Oklahoma and literally everywhere. I can do a month's worth of business in four hours, as opposed to sitting there and waiting for someone to walk in and the business. And this was something that had happened with my mom, even through the furniture store is that people became so attached to her, even when I was working for her and I'd say, Hey, here's some things. Well, did you show that to your mom? What did your, what does your mom think? Right. So then when I had the brick and mortar and I was like, I can't sit here five days a week, I need to bring in someone to run the shop for me. People come in and be like, oh, is Adair here? And they'd say, no, she'll be, oh, I'll come back later because they wanted the design ideas yeah. and the story right. and well, give well, me. They want, you, they want your authority. I mean, right. you and have experience. That so, was yeah. really hard because I couldn't teach that to anyone. I couldn't pass that off to anybody. And yeah. so, yeah, so I came home, pivoted in April, started selling on social media. Um, and then I had been working for a local auctioneer who was just talk about a karmic relationship. Like here, let me keep pouring myself out for you and accepting scraps and still thinking that I need to keep producing and earning and overperforming so that you will, you know, appreciate me. And I was like, I'm done with this. And so I pivoted and started 
my own online auction company in by July of 2020. And again, because I was like, well, if I'm moving, I need to have a business. I need to be legitimate. I can't just be selling antiques from an apartment. Like that's, you know, that's batshit. Who, who, who puts that on their resume as a career, right? Now, now a lot of people. <laughs> I know for real. Yeah. It's the and I, model. I, mean. I started working really hard and putting my energy in the wrong place. Right. Mm. And so with the catalyst that was 2021, now, like literally I had a phone call yesterday that was like, can you be in Minnesota to help us with an auction by Saturday at 9am? And I was like, it's 12 hours one way. No, I can't, but I can do it for you remotely. Mm. Right. Or like when I'm in Madison and I'm seeing Brett and his uh, fiance, like we're talking and I was like, there's this thing, there's this kernel of an idea that I know that if I can just get it charted and get it in the right hands of the right developer or the right project, like it could completely change my industry mm-hmm. and there, I can't do that from here. Yeah. So now it's at the position where it's like, okay, time to like take away that safety, you know, that crutch because I came home in 2002 and went right to work side by side with my mom. And so mm-hmm. like, I've been that like, not a safety blanket because she, she's like your mom. She doesn't need many people, but mm-hmm. it makes her feel very safe because when she's like, well, if you really think you're going, have you looked at the economy? Have you looked at the cost of gas? Like all of those like motherly fear based things that are like, right. But at the same time, like I know in my knower now having gone through and not being the same person now that I was a year ago or two years ago that I'm like, like, yeah, I'm ready for, I'm ready for it. Let me ask you one of, one of the things that, um, I personally, I have a, I have a soft spot for like garage sales and yard sales. My, when I, my grandma, Pat, uh, my dad's mom, um, when we'd get dropped off to be babysat on some weekends, uh, my grandma over the summer would open up the classifieds and circle all of the garage sales and we would just go walking mm-hmm. for hours like eight hours just wandering around Tuscarawa you know Ohio population six you know like we go to the six garage sales that, that, that happened every summer you know and there's something about that little treasure hunt for me that um now as a 42 year old man and I'm walking down the street in Manhattan and I see a a bunch of stuff that people have put on the curb I cannot stop myself from rummaging through it. And it drives yeah. me crazy. I'm like, this is all infested with bed bugs. What are you doing, Josh? But I can't, I just, my grandma Pat's right here. Yeah. Um, what you're doing strikes me as sort of overlapping a little bit um, with that, that, that e- economy and ecosystem. But I'm curious for you, like why, why not just dead people stuff, but like, like, knickknacks little personal treasures i feel like you are you're trafficking in sentimentality and i that sounds like a ter- like you're no. a drug dealer or something no. but like, like that's not at all my, my you're tracking what? you're tracking so right so growing up in florida right my dad worked for major restaurants and hotels and disney for a while and then but my mom and her very best friend in florida in florida they didn't have auctions they had estate sales and garage sales mm-hmm. and so i was like five right And my mom, on a Saturday morning, her best friend Barbara would come over in her big car with epic trunk space, and I would get to go along, and we would go to McDonald's 
and like get a sausage biscuit for breakfast. And Barbara got the largest diet Coke in 1986 that they would sell her. And I was like, how can you have a job where you get to have diet Coke for like, I don't drink diet soda, but I was like, how do you have a job where you can have soda for breakfast? Like I want that. These ladies figured something out. Like something's cool. And we started going and I could look with my mom but I wasn't allowed to touch. And we were at a big flea market there one time and I wanted to buy an antique child's book. And my mom handed me a dollar and she said, go over and ask the man how much the book is. When he tells you, you pay him and bring mama back the change. So I have a dollar like clenched in my fist. And I asked the man how much the book is. And he goes, Oh, that book 50 cents. And I go, would you take a dollar? Cause I had a dollar. <laughs> And he did what you did, what everyone's always done when I tell the story. He laughed. I was mortified. Everyone in earshot laughed. I didn't know what to do. And the, his wife ended up, like, he gave me the book. Because I'd seen my mom go, you have 10 on this. Would you take 8? You have 12 on this. Would you take 10? If I buy these things, can we bundle it together? Uh-huh. And so I had learned by osmosis. And so as I got older, to help my mom with her dealing, like, I could pick stuff up and she'd say, did you see that this was cracked? Did you see that this was chipped? Why did you think mom would like this? By the time I was eight, we could cover an estate sale or garage sale. Like she'd go one way. I'd go the other. We'd meet in the middle. Well, then that comes into like our furniture and our design business. We'd go to market, go to a showroom. We would like this, like we would land on the same stuff. She was training me. It was totally Mr. Miyagi, right? Only it was like my redheaded mother, like, I was learning without knowing that I was learning, but here's what I, in the past year, this is what I realized. I put way more sentiment into other people's stuff than they do. Right. Cause I think, Oh my gosh, like this stuff is a survivor. This stuff has been passed down. Like I helped your mom and uncle when your grandma glow, like, right. Your mom comes to me and says, Hey, there, we need to have an estate sale. The house isn't going to sell. You have until spring. And then she was like, haha, just kidding. We're closing in a month. You have 30 days to help me empty the house. And I was like, all right. Right. And there were things that like, like religious, like Catholic cards that have a huge collectability market. And your uncle was like, absolutely not. No one gets them. Right. He didn't want them. Your mom didn't want them, but he thought that like selling them was very taboo. Like it, it unsettled him. And so I've realized that my job is like a connector, right? About putting people either in other working relationships with people that can benefit them or bringing them something that they already want, but can't find where they are. Well, and, then, and it strikes, it strikes, I'm oh, sorry, sorry to interrupt. Right. No, I was just going to say like, it, it strikes me too, that like you have to walk the delicate balance of, you know, I, I'm only speaking, I don't want to speak for my mom and my uncle, but I did yeah. hear enough of the conversations and, and I remember that time enough to, I think think diagnose it correctly here but like the um when two people like my mom and my uncle are settling in a state you you sometimes don't have time for nostalgia like you're dealing you open up a box and you realize like my mom kept every check stub ever yeah which has no value yeah and i have to dig through and there might be one piece, there might be a birth certificate in this box and I have to find it, you know, like, right. so you, you don't have time to be like, Oh, you remember this story? Like, yeah. and then, then, but then also you don't just want to give it all away, but you need the money to settle the estate. You need the money for funerals. Like there's, there's an important, there is an argument you could have made to my uncle. Like, listen, I know that these are sentimental to you, but actually it's going to make your life really easy 
if we do sell these at the value, because then you can pay for this other thing that's required yeah. for your mom. Like, well, but that's a, that's a fine line. You as the connector has to has, have to walk. But like, I imagine that is, that comes up. Like, well, like you're that's like, the thing. That's the thing that for me with auction houses and with estate companies or dealers is that so many get by for so long on being just absolutely shitty to people that actually need them to perform a service. So like, I remember when your mom called mine and was like, Hey, I've got this stuff that was my mom's. I don't know what to do. And my mom goes, yeah, Adair does that. Right. Cause I hadn't put out, like, I wasn't hanging out a shingle that said, Hey, I also handle in estates because I couldn't go to garage sales here because people had seen me coming and they thought that I was going to like rob them. When the irony is if they had something priced too low, I was going to pay them more for it because I knew what it was valued at. You're like the guy from American Pickers. I mean, like I'm the the reverse of them. Like if they're not valuing, if they tell me that they want 10, I'm like, I'll give you 40. It's worth 40 to me. Like, I don't need to get it for 10. I can still pay you 40 and still make a profit and like sleep at night and not be a douche. Like that's the stuff that's different because I had never intended to do estates. Like we had had... I had had a client through the furniture store, a little lady in her nineties who moved from like upstate New York to Dover to be close to her daughter. And she had brought me an antique chair to have repaired and we did it. And she called us up to her house. She lived at like heritage apartments. Again, your listeners have no clue, but it's an apartment. I used to complex. deliver newspapers to heritage apartments. You got I it. remember that. I remember the smell of those. Oh apartments my gosh. Very the smell, well. The smell is still there. It is. Is like, the carpet all still that like weird red, like light maroon red. Okay. Yep, man, and it's like all of my DNA like is lighting up right now. It feels like a, it feels like a hotel from like 19, yes. like 1980s. Like it feels yeah. like that vibe. Cause I think it has to be whatever, like they use to clean it. It has that very distinct smell. And like Jean is in her nineties, like she's 92, 93. And she goes, I want you to sell some things for me. And I was like, all right, Jean, what do you want to pay? Like, what do you want to sell off? I can help you do that. And she's like, oh, not now when I die. And I was like, are you okay? And she was like, oh no, I'm fine. But like my daughter and son aren't going to know what to keep or what to do. And I want you to come in. Will you do that for me? And I was like, yes. My dad died in March of 2015. Mm-hmm. Jean died a month later to the day at the age of 99. And here comes her son and daughter. Or her son lived in California. The daughter lived here. She had like her, her grandfather's naturalization record from 1869, where he became a U.S. citizen after fighting in the Civil War. She had a picture like her mother had been one of the first humans carried across the Brooklyn bridge. When the Brooklyn bridge opened, we're talking about, she had gone to Wellesley, her, like all of this. You need need to hook me up with these. You need to hook me up with some of these people to talk on my podcast, because this is one of, one of my regrets, uh, as a 42 year old man is not talking to older people. Oh yeah. Like just hearing their. Actually, I think your mom probably knows her daughter because her daughter was also a teacher. Um, I won't drop her name in the podcast, but like, Mm -hmm. Her, her father has a port, her father-in-law has a portion of the Adirondack National Forest named after them. He had gone to Hawaii in the twenties as a forester, like all of this epic history and a little apartment in Dover, Ohio. And I was like, right. So I handle the estate for them. I handle what's getting shipped across the country. I have the moving company come in, have a dossier packed, create this, ship this, deliver this, move this. All of that was done. Three weeks later, someone else who had come to the to the estate sale calls someone else, 
the mom had been a hundred. She lived on 14th street. The house had sold. They had been selling off her mother's antiques to friends and they were offering them $40 for Ben glass and Tiffany glass and high end antiques. And they had been taking it because they thought, well, $40 buys two cases of insure for my hundred year old mom. We'll take it. And so now I'm coming in and it was like, it's such nice stuff. Okay. Well, if it was 1980, I could sell this plate for a hundred today. I can't sell it for five. Even if your mom bought it for a hundred dollars in 1980, she's owned it for 30 years. We're talking fractions of a penny a day to own it and enjoy it. At some point you just have to let it go. But through that estate sale, someone else came and said, well, I sent all of my mother's estate to a local auctioneer and he told me I wasn't allowed to keep anything and they sold it all off and I owed him a thousand dollars because he charged her commission and pickup and storage and display and rent of his building and advertising and for all the stuff. And like, you got robbed is what you got got robbed. And when someone had, you only have one chance to sell something. Right. Well, this is like this is when you talk to people who run funeral homes. Uh, my wife is a pastor, and so she's right. in she's she's works with a lot of funeral directors over her life, and you can tell the good ones from the bad ones. I mean, because that's like people at the end of their life. Uh, it's like being stuck in an airport. Like you're willing to pay seventeen dollars for a bag of chips at an airport. Yeah, just to make stuck. it go away. Right. Yeah, just to make it go away. And now at the end of your life, like funeral directors, like you are in a very powerful position where you help people don't want to be there. They, they want it over with as quickly as possible. Um, and so like, yeah, and you're dealing with, with grief, like, which is also one of the worst emotions humans can deal with in terms of how it can manifest. Like, right. you know, I'm yeah. sure you've been screamed at. I'm sure you've been, you know, threatened and, you know, because just because people are in a crazy state of mind around this stuff. And, um, which leads me to this question, like, are there any no-nos for you? Like, is there anything you won't sell? I mean, I like, the reason I ask is because I have some tattoos, and I, when I get, sat down with my tattoo guy, he was like, just so you know, I do not tattoo hands, and I will not tattoo faces. Oh. And I was like, what? And he's like, he's like, people who have that, I don't want to deal with their mental state and what they're going to regret later. And I was like, interesting. And so, like... It made me think about like, what are my no nos? Like, is there music I won't play? Like, is there anything for you if somebody came to you and was like, "Here, I have, I have three hundred relatives worth of ashes, and I would like for you to sell them all." Like, I think you- that's really, I think that's really where it falls in for me. So, through this community, you can literally find anyone selling anything, whether that be like medical specimens, wet specimens, like, di- like the oddities and the macabre collectors are something totally different for me. I am definitely far more comfortable in like basically like 1840s to like 1930s are my sweet spot. So I have not quite a decade. Once you get into like the forties, fifties, mid century, I can appreciate it, but it's not what I know and it's not what I deal in. And you can't find it. It's very hard to find here. And so like, and I've been lucky because I've really only taken on estates that I've really wanted to handle, mm-hmm. but I've gone to enough estates and I've seen enough auctions where families are fighting or where the grief is just fracturing people. No one is prepared to do retail across the casket, right. which is what I've always said forever. Like, <laughs> That's a good I, phrase. You need to put that on a t-shirt. <laughs> something. I, like, I hear all these cute like Instagram shop owners and they've got merch and stuff. And I'm like, you can't do retail on a casket, right? At some point, the stuff doesn't matter. The stuff is just stuff. Like you put, we put meaning and value to objects that the objects can't physically hold because they're not sentient. 
they're not reflective. They're just a touch point for us to remember a memory, a different age to appreciate the craftsmanship or whatever. Like that's cool. Um, but like, I've been to those estates where like the family members are trying to run it and people are just like, you have 10 cents on this. Would you take a nickel? Like I went to like a estate sale in like Reeves Heights and the guy had, again, his mom was like a hundred, this little time capsule of a house on Shaper Avenue, amazing things. Every bottom dwelling river person that was there was there because they were going to take it all and they didn't have prices on things. And all the little 80 year old neighbors were trying to help the son run the estate sale. And there were these guys that were bragging that they were going to sell the stuff or get the stuff cheap for their wives to sell at the flea market or the Dover flea market or whatever else. And the man was very prickly. And he had had like a walking cane and a couple other things. And I just held it to the side. And I said, sir, I said, I'd like to buy this walking cane. And he goes, what are you prepared to offer me? Because some guy had offered him like 10 bucks for seven. And I was like, I would pay you $50 for this walking cane. And he stuck out his hand and shook my hand. And I could buy anything else I wanted the rest of the day because he knew I was coming with my best offer. Right. Mm -hmm. And I was going to treat him fairly. But then, like, I see one of those crusty old dudes, there's a box of vintage jewelry, and here's the guy's wife, who's not from Dover, who's sitting here with her mother-in-law's possessions, and the guy's like, sell it to me, I'll give you 50 bucks right now, I'll give you 50 bucks right now. The man didn't want to sell it to him, he was trying to get him thrown out of the sale, and she finally just sold it, because she was up against a rock against a hard place and had no one to tell her that she was being taken. Or another little teacher out in the country whose mom needed to go to nursing home and live next door and they're selling the house. And like her dad had been a woodworker and a friend of mine had taken me to their house and they did not trust me when they first met me. They later became very good clients, like bought stained glass windows and lighting fixtures for me that they installed in their house. But in that first meeting, because I have antique knowledge, they're like, oh, you're going to take advantage and this little guy had came up and he had three little like homemade screwdrivers. And he was like, how much for these? And in my head, I'm like, say $10, say 10. Like, I think I'm psychic. I'm like, say $10, say $10, say $10. And she was like a dollar each. And he was like, eh. And she was like 50 cents each. And he was like, eh. And she was like a dollar for all of them. And he was like, okay. Right. Sometimes people just like the, they like the process and it's like, it's not even, a, there's a guy, there's a guy that runs a music shop, um, down in the, in the East village or West village. And I won't, I won't say the name, but prices are just like up, up marked by like 400% sure. on everything. It's all used. And he just loves the haggle. He loves the, the back and forth and he'll set like, like, it doesn't matter. Like sometimes he, like you bundle things together and it's just like, I walk out of there like, what, what happened? And he's just like, he just loves the fight, you know? Yeah. Um, I'm curious though, like, is there anything just cause I, I'm, I'm also love these stories of like, you know, a Van Gogh painting shows up at a, you know, a garage sale. Like, have you ever come across something that you're like, nobody knew that they had or what it was it, or in that vein, is there anything you've come across? Like, just, just going to, uh, I know that you don't traffic in this, but like, if you go to like a gun show, which is kind of a weird, like garage sale for sure. guns, right. they sell a lot of Nazi paraphernalia. 
lot of World War, a lot of World War II stuff. And I'm curious, does that stuff ever creep up in your in your? Library? So I, have, I have two stories for you. The first is something that I physically own. The some the second is a story that my mom will never live down. Okay, so the first one is I had hit a thrift store, I had hit a resale shop, um, and there was a piece of white pottery that had some German writing around it. And I was like, oh, I have like, I know people that deal in like Amish country and do whatever, like maybe they'd want that for their booth. It was a dollar. It was a dollar. So I bought it, wrapped it up, put it away. And I was like, oh, I need some stuff for like this little antique booth I had tried out there. I am not an antique booth seller. I am a market, like put me at the Brooklyn flea, put me at the spring. Like I'm used to dealing with people, which is really the beauty of Facebook because they see my hands, they hear my voice. We're still interacting on a personal level. So it's the beauty of retail with like the ease of social media. And I'm like, I wonder what this is. I should put the writing into like Google and translate it. It was a piece of Nazi pottery that was created for the 1930, was created for the 1939 Reichs party which would have been the SS's like little convention yeah, yeah, that yeah. then didn't happen because World War II broke out like two weeks prior. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, how did this little piece of Nazi pottery be in Maslin, Ohio? And how did I buy it for a dollar? I don't know. I go online. Um, there's a dealer in Virginia where I had to live for a short time on a, like a remote project who has one listed for like $3,000. And so I sent him an email and I was like, dear sir, I have one. Would you be interested in buying mine? And he was like, no, because I have it priced too high. And I actually have about four. He was like, but if you want to do it, here's the name of this retired Air Force colonel who, oh, is the largest single dealer in World War II paraphernalia and has the like stone head of Hitler that was displayed in London post-war. I'm like, sure, sure. So I send him a message. I send him an email. This is like 2008, right? 2008. I send him an email and I'm like, dear sir, I was given your name. I have this piece of pottery. Would you be interested in buying it? Please. And thank you. Let me know. And he goes, well, what are you wanting for it? And I said, well, I've been seeing them listed. And I was like, you know, $1,200 just shooting, shooting my shot. $1,200. He was like, I've never seen one sell for more than a thousand. And I was like, okay. And I said, well, if that's the case, you tell me what you'd be prepared to pay for it. And I'll get back to you. He said $800 and you pay pay shipping. And I was like, sold, sold, sold. So that was my one epic score. And so then he goes, well, here's what you should look for. Look for the animals. Look for this party, Mark. I've never found another piece. I've never gone looking for another piece because that really, as as an Italian, my dad was born in 41. Like my grandmother, like they lived through the war. I have a hard time with that crap. Um, And again, I feel like so many weird people go down rabbit holes of collecting that for different reasons. And I kind of don't want that in my space or in my juju, but that was my story. The second story was like four well, just, years. Just, be- just before the second story real quick. I mean, the one thing that's interesting to me about that particular um, the, uh, ecosystem within the trade or the, mm-hmm. the, the used good world that I mean, yeah. that's not even the right, right word used. Goods, but like, I had that moment when I was at the uh, the gun show. I was, you know, it, it felt a little bit like I was like like I, like I was at an ivory convention or something. Oh, yeah. like, I was like, oh man, like I don't know. Yes, this is history. It's important. I'm I love history, and I think history is important that we remember it. I don't think this. I think this stuff should all be in a museum so we can right. see what people did. 
but right. like selling Nazi flags as like paraphernalia. There was a part of me that was just like, man, I think that should be right there with ivory. Like yeah. you wouldn't, you wouldn't sell a, 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 a cup full of teeth. Would you like, no. those were also paraphernalia from, from, from the world war two. Like, and I just there felt are people like that just, do deal in teeth and do deal in like dental fixture. Like, again, imagine the weirdest thing. It's kind of like, what's the rule 43 or 30. Is it 43? where there's something, there's literally something for anybody that whatever weird combination of something, there's someone that likes it somewhere. Like there's a deep dive on that stuff. It's right up there with me. I know a couple um, Jewish collectors. In fact, I know a really well-known jewelry dealer who's in like the upper East side who for a while was buying that again and donating it to the Shoah foundation, like donating it away or burning it because for him as, as a person of both ethnicity and faith, like that's a huge thing for him to see people profiting off of that stuff. Um, and so again, I have a, I have a really hard time with it because again, it either needs to be in a museum. There should be no reason that Billy, Billy Bob has like a cachet of that stuff. I also realized that like the piece that I had was probably brought home by a soldier and his family didn't know what it was. And they cleaned out the house and sent all the stuff. And people don't know what they have. Um, and they don't know who to ask. And a lot of times people that put themselves in those functions as a professional are violating ethics because they're also wanting to buy it and, and devalue it so that they get it for less. Um, so, yeah, I I would I would fall right into that category. I could not go to a gun show because I couldn't keep my mouth shut. Like I would need to take like bodyguards and because <laughs> I would like walk in and I would want to pick a fight with some big burly dude about like rights and needs and that it would not go well. It would not go well at all. Well, sorry, I interrupted you before your second story. You're really fine. So the second story is um, I was working for an auctioneer, working for his auction house. Uh, he was Amish. And he would buy, he would buy like truckloads of things off of other dealers. They would come and they'd be like, Hey, we want to sell you this whole entire truckload for a thousand dollars. You get everything on the truck and he'd buy it. And so it's this huge oil painting of a masted ship and behind the masted ship is something on fire. Now this thing is on its end. Cause it's a landscape. Um, is a, it's five foot. Cause I'm five, four. And the thing came to like my nose and I had been to a couple auctions. I had been, hitting some really great like runs of product that I both collect and had was dealing to some very good clients. So I was spending a lot of money at the short term. I'm at this auction. My mom's at this auction. I was like, I really like this painting. I really like this painting. I want to buy it. And she goes, you live in Dover, Ohio. Who's putting a five foot, who has a five foot wall in their, you know, pillbox post-war Worcester Avenue home. And if they do, who's putting a big picture of a masted ship? We live in Ohio. There's no water. Like you have no one to sell it to. Don't buy, don't buy this picture. And I was like, there's something about this picture. I want to buy it. And I let her counsel me and talk me out of it. You're like somebody at Tappan Lake owns a boat. Somebody wants, this in wants their- a masted frigate <laughs> with British flags on it. Someone's going to want this ship. Right. So another auctioneer I know had come down from Chesterland and buys the painting and the painting sells for like 250, $225. I could have had it for 250. I let it go. The auctioneer heard mom talking me out of it. He goes, are you sure you don't want it? Like, I'll let you take it. I'm just taking a gamble on it. What do you want? And I was like, 
no, she's right. I shouldn't spend $250 on an oil paint, whatever. And he takes it and he goes, he like sends a note to like my boss at the time and said, Hey, I think this might be better, better than I think it is. Like, I think it might be worth like five to $10,000. If it's worth five to $10,000, I'll give you a little extra for it. And the next thing you know, it's listed online on one of our global auction platforms that I run. Cause I actually interviewed with an auction company um, in Manhattan, like during the breakup and closing the shop where I would have had to move and work in Midtown where I would have been a New York transplant. Um, and it's listed and the reserve or the estimate is listed between 50,000 and 150,000 because here it's a World War I painting of an English masted ship taking out a German submarine on fire printed by the, or painted by this master like naval painter. The British Royal family owns his artwork. His artwork's in the Tate. It's in the Met. It's in whatever. And it sells the first time for $62,000. And my boss is like underground call in the, like call in the undertaker. Like he's ready to die. So it sells for $62,000. So I look at my mom and I go like pay off all my student loans at one time, buy a house, buy a car. Like what could, what could have been done? And she was like, you didn't have the resources to have it authenticated, whatever. So here the story is the winning bidder when it sold for $62,000 was a broker and their sell fell through. So they had to pay 20%, the buyer's premium, they had to pay 20% to be let out of the deal. So they had to pay $12,000 to not pay $62,000 or sixty, yeah, $62,000. The auctioneer then sold it or took it to Sotheby's, sold it at Sotheby's for six figures. His single, like we're talking well over a quarter of a million I mean, dollars. This and is... It, and it was in Mount Eaton, Ohio, and it sold for $225. And it was it was right there. This is one of the things that I just like, if I was in your line of business, I would I would get a grant. I would write a grant and be like, I need to have ten thousand dollars worth of just a pool of money on hand so that when I go to every estate sale, garage sale, yard sale, if there's a painting there, yeah, no matter how what it costs, I'm buying it. Yeah. Because that $10,000 gamble, if you just bought every painting you went to that was like $5, $2, a nickel, $250, and you just like, okay, I'm going to commit to spending $1,500 at every estate sale because I got this yeah. grant. Yeah. It's going to pay off. Yeah. <laughs> Eventually, you're going to find – all you need is one. You yeah. just need to be right once, and now you got you got, you got six yeah. figures. You know, like, well, like even bonkers. Even then, I had bought a British oil painting that needed conservation work. Mm-hmm. I think I paid like three fifty dollars for it. It was beautiful. It was like – birds and like a park scene and it was again british um and i didn't i when i was closing the shop i didn't have a way to move it and i didn't have a way to get it to Baumgartner's restoration in chicago to get it restored or the capital to get it restored and it was one of those things where i just had to sacrifice it and say well i owned it once but i couldn't follow through on it um but yeah they don't normally give grants that way i know i know i'm 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 aware but i'm just saying it it should exist If, if you could get grants to buy paintings my problem is I would then buy the paintings and be like, I don't want to sell the paintings. I just want to own the paintings. Um, but yeah, even with starting the company, even with what's coming next, like I had had people offer me like, Hey, I have money in my accounts that I need to like 
get off my accounts and invest for taxes. I want to give you invest money in you. And a year ago I was like, eh, eh. like I, there was a block where I didn't think that I deserved it. Or even as much as I knew, I somehow had this like imposter syndrome of stepping into those environments and being found lacking. Um, but then when you go five rounds of interviews with the largest auction platform in the world that was just acquired for half a billion dollars, like, yeah, you and got I, your head. I still like all of a sudden I was like, Oh, I'm great. And so, but when they go, Hey, what are your salary expectations? I was like, I didn't, I had never interviewed with anyone in my life. Like I've always been self-employed or an entrepreneur working in a family business. And they go, what are your salary expectations? And I was like, to be paid the same as anybody else in my role. Right. Mm-hmm. And they're like, well, can you maintain relationships with 200 people? And I was like, have you ever walked into a grocery store and seen the president of a bank that bought a sofa from your mother in 1997? And you still remember the style of sofa he bought and that it was red and white Buffalo check. Like mm-hmm. you don't, people in New York don't understand the way that you can maintain a network of this many people in this community. Um, so as a, in a weird sense, it makes me feel like the Swiss army knife of like antiques and vintage goods, because I know how to connect people and get them the tools that they need to give them information so that they can make educated choices about what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Um, and to answer something that like other service providers are not doing, Right. Because again, and that's a whole nother, but like auctioneers and auction houses are predominantly male dominated spaces. Right. But they're selling to women Mm -hmm. and they don't always know how to sell to women and they don't know how to deal with women that are then have items to sell. Like they don't Mm -hmm. know how to do that follow through. And that was something that I learned working in furniture and home design with my mom is that a man might pay for a home remodel, but it's the wife that's driving those choices, right? Mm-hmm. Occasionally, you'd have a dude that was like... I would say that's fairly... I mean, I, it, it sounds stereotypical, but it's it's accurate. I mean, like, right. I, I, I just... Men in general, I have sentimentality around objects and things, but by and large, like, I don't have... I just can't find the part of me that wants to invest in the color of the couch. I just right. don't care. Well, you know, right. like, I want a couch. Does the couch right. sit me? That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I think in that, in that regard, like I remember when, when new people were moving into the area and the builders, people wanted white trim or they didn't want golden Oak kitchens. And I remember, um, people that had come that my mom had sent them to a different builder. They'd had an appointment where the wife came in with like notes. Here's what I want. Here's what I want. Here's what I want. The builder listened to her talk, look at her husband. And he was like, so what are we going to choose? Right. And so some of that, again, comes into, like, I realize that the average person doesn't find their career taking them into antiquities or dead people things, right? (laughs) DPT, dead people things, um, (laughs) like, easily, and they don't always do it because they care about the people that they're servicing. But Mm. if this is the last time in, like, your situation, if this was the last time you were going to see something from Grandma Pat or Grandma Glow, like, you want to make sure that it's treated with respect that it deserves, and it's not just, like, paraded out for a dollar or thrown into a dumpster or put into a landfill because there is someone somewhere that is going to appreciate it, and it's just being where the current takes you, like, 
putting it in front of the right audience to where it's going to do what it deserves to do. Well, I, and, Adele, Adele, Adair, excuse me. Uh, you, people you call really, me that all the time. I don't sing like no, her. I wish I sang no, like her, but I don't. I have a friend named Adele as well. Um, so anyways, I apologize. Uh, the, the thing, though, that I feel like you just hit on the head there is this um, – you you have this interesting. Oh, by the way, I love dead people things. That your your website should be deadpeoplethings.com. I think that's perfect. Yeah, it's alicedare.com, but it could be dead people. No, 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 no. You got to change it. That's my advice to you. Yeah, Adair. dead people uh, things. Or your Instagram handle should be dead people things. Um, <laughs> the though, yes, I, I appreciated what you said about the like. Your job is to put care behind somebody else's cared for stuff. And like, I just like, if you sold my grandma glows, a uh, percolating coffee maker that was only used once a year at Christmas because yeah. she didn't drink coffee. And there's the one Christmas that she cleaned it out with the SOS pad, but left the SOS pad in there and forgot. And then next Christmas made coffee with an SOS pad in it. Like, I think the her trauma, mom kept it actually. That, <laughs> yeah. She probably still has it, but like yeah. the idea that that would be sold for a dollar, like, yeah, that, it's not a rational thing that I would get upset about that, but like that memory, that laughter, right. the fact that my brother went out and bought a gallon of coffee at the grocery store right. um, and everybody thought it was hilarious. We made fun of my grandma for like a decade after that. Like yeah. that's worth more than a dollar to me. There's currency right. there and right. it would be insulting to me for somebody to come in and just be like, it's a fucking coffee pot with, and it smells like SOS. Yeah. Like, yeah. Even though you're right, you're a hundred percent right. <laughs> Well, that's it's like just that, you know, it's in different. that situation, I remember your mom kept her desk, mm -hmm. like the desk upstairs, which meant the yeah. desk that your mom had upstairs had to go to the basement. So I had it all mapped out for the movers. And again, your mom and uncle, like it's December, right? It's January. We're getting closer to closing on the house. And your mom's like, how did you, she didn't know to use the movers. Like it's white glove. I had it completely mapped. This stuff's going to your um, uncle and aunt. This stuff's going over here. This stuff's going to your mom. When this stuff comes in, this has to move. And she's like, that was the best money I ever spent. But when someone doesn't know who to ask, yeah, yeah. right? Like, that's why I get cringy when people are like, oh, who should I call or what should I do? Like on Facebook and people are just throwing out suggestions and they don't know or they ha don't work in that industry. I was like, please don't suggest that auction house. Like I had a woman, again, someone was referred her to me. She lives in California. They were moving her mom. They had all of her dad. He was a huge Tuscarawas County historian. And I said, I can handle, you need to do this as an auction. We would need to secure the fairgrounds for the local history. Like I could have it done for you in May. And she's like, oh, we can't wait that long. And she went with an auction house north of Dover who split it into two auctions and didn't even get to it until September, sold it all on a Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. And it didn't do what it should do because those guys don't care. Like when Gary Petricola passed away, the same auction house came through and I was like everything on a shelf for a dollar and the house was dusty and dark. And like, I realized why our mutual friend, I think he graduated with you. Didn't Zach graduate? Zach, yeah. He was a year. Uh, he was my brother's age. I think he was three years younger. Than okay. Me. Gotcha. He was okay. That tracks. Cause I couldn't remember if he was with you or if he was with. I think he was um, my brother's Zach, age. Right. But like local people, took that so personally and were like, I would never use that auction house. Mm -hmm. Right. Because they didn't put, it was the bare, bare minimum. Well, Cause in, in that instance, Gary Petricola, who, if you don't know Dover at all, Gary was the voice of the marching band. He was the voice of 
the steel band concerts like he was the voice of dover he was uh you know yeah. on the radio like he, he owned the radio a, station a, like yeah he was a pillar of the community in terms of like wjer radio station i countless of my people that we went to high school with now work at wjer were hired by gary we're amy owned smith WJR, i think co-owns right. now because yeah. of gary like right. you know and so the idea in that moment though gary was the coffee pot yeah. Somebody came in and was just like, what the fuck is this old dirty coffee pot here for? Like, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. But he was the guy that said the yeah. thing at the thing all yeah. the time. Like, But at the same time, like the stuff deserved better care. Again, yeah. Zach is long distance. He needs it done. He needs it settled. He needs it off. He's got his life in Orlando with like, he's doing those things. It makes total sense. And he's he grieving and he's grieving. Right. Like he doesn't, you know, like this is an awful right. experience for him. But you here's, know, like, here's this company. And so then I have other professionals in the community who are like, man, my, you know, I called in an estate company from Akron because we just have new goods. We don't have antiques. It's not your area. And I was like, you picked the best estate company that I would have called in for a moving sale or a like whatever sale. And she was like, I will never use that company because of the lack of care is obvious. And it's now evidenced because there's no follow through. And for me as a professional, I want to maximize the, the sale for my clients because then that maximizes what I earn. Like well, you get, you get the effort, you, you reap what you sow, yeah. like as cliche as that is, as like biblical and, and old fashioned, like, and you only have one chance to sell it. Right. So like when there were pieces in, in estates that I've handled that are worth some money, my, my clients don't get a chance to get a do-over if I miss it. If I miss that thing that's worth a quarter of a million dollars, because, all right, think about the dude, not just my former boss who was completely pissed that he had owned it and missed it. What about the dude that bought it and sold it in a truckload to him, right? Like how many hands did that pass through where someone missed what the value of this item was? Mm-hmm. And who couldn't have been like... Not that I would have wanted my former boss to have that much money, but like, couldn't have someone else have have benefited from that money? How did that piece get to the United States in the first place? Like, dealers from around the globe couldn't figure out how it even popped up here. We're questioning its authenticity because it was here, because it was supposed to be like a piece of that caliber should have never left England. Right, right. And so then, like my analytical Sherlock Holmes, let's figure out the meaning to all the things. Brain is like. I want to, I want to discover the answer to those mysteries, right? Well, like, yeah, Even I mean, I... This, it's, it's something that like strikes me as like, you get a little dopamine hit every time you, you learn more about the provenance of something like right. where you, you learn about the story. And even if it's not, even if it's banal information, like, yeah. you know, there was a, there was a, a remember the story of a, a woman who grew up her, her, there was a, like a, a, a wall mural, um, like a, not, not a, what are they, the, uh, tapestry of tapestry. Sort. Yeah. Like a wall hanging. hanging. Yeah, and it was it was like the Last Supper or something, some some painting of Christ the Last Supper on you know or, uh, on tapestry in her living room her whole life. She saw a picture of the Berghof, which is the mountain that Hitler had his big estate on top of. That painting was hanging in the Berghof, and she's like, her grandfather I brought was it back. One of the first was one of the first U.S. soldiers in the Berghof after they took it over. 
and was just like, well, put this in my backpack. Like, you know, everybody took a, everybody took a souvenir. Like some people took silverware. Somebody took somebody took Hitler's soap. I'm sure of it out of the showers. Like, I'm going to take the soap that Hitler washed himself with. Like, yeah, you know, and that's how this stuff makes it makes its way into the general yeah. populace. And so when you learn about that pop, that provenance, like to me, that strikes me as like, it's a weird, it's a treasure hunt. And like, it's, you, it, you, it strikes me as a very fascinating career, Adair. Adair. And I, I got to say, um, it, even since the passing of my grandmother and you helping my uncle and my mom settle that estate, I'm feeling like I'm tracking your business, you know, from the outside, you are definitely in a different position than you were even four or five years ago. And, yeah. you know, I know that's hard to see it when you're in it every day. Um, but, but I feel like you have a lot of, you clearly have a, an authority over, you have passion, but that doesn't necessarily mean you have an authority over something. I'm right. passionate about a lot of stuff that I don't know anything about. Right. You know? But you, you, you have the passion. You also know a shitload about this stuff. Mm-hmm. And the third part of it is you care about what happens to it and how it's treated. Um, you know, and I just, I think that over the long haul, that's going to come out in the wash in a good way. Well, um, it I'll- has. I, I appreciate that so much because so often like the people that attend my sales on social media, they're like, can you give me an age on this? Like, how would this have been used? Or like the thing that drives me crazy. And I think it's like my Virgo rising, right. Is because when people are like, Oh, and they try and put false information to something or they try and claim something isn't what it is. Like, I can't, I can't sit on that information and let someone believe something that's wrong. Like, so I'll take that chance to like educate him and be like, yeah, I know that's not what this is. Or like, Oh, those, no, that's not what this is. Um, and so I always get the joke that I'm like the professor, right? They're like, oh, what's... And so then people start asking me for that information. And to me, I, information is information. It belongs to everyone. Like, are you going to file it away and know it forever? Probably not. But someone that's any more than when you're buying a vehicle or buying a house, you want to know like, you know... Was it was it in a car wreck? <laughs> exactly. You want to know some history. Like, does it have damage? Does it stand on its own? What does it do? Um, and really where I see this tracking for me is more about, I can, with COVID and whatever, I now know that I can do what I do literally from anywhere. Yeah. Um, so now it's like, all right, is it really Madison? When is, when is it Madison? All right. I packed, like I moved so much stuff. I let so much stuff go a year ago, but now it's time to like start cutting wood. Right. Like that musical term, you, you've got it down to here, but now it's time to like refine it so that it's super tight and super. It's all fun and games. It's all fun and games to read about brain surgery until the point you have to cut a head open. Yeah. Like, and there's the, but you have to, right. and, and every brain surgeon has cut into their first head and been like, yeah. what is about to happen? I've read about this for <laughs> yeah. 20 years. Like, you know, and, I, and, but, I kept, but you just got to do it, you know, with this much box truck fulls that I let go at the end that like I don't I donated sprinter van fulls to like local charity shops like even with all the stuff that I purged in round one it's time to purge again mm-hmm. and get it really small and get it running very very much in a routine but then it's like all right is it time to take on the auction industry as a whole because mm-hmm. and that's a whole nother deep dive because like I was at dinner with Brett and Alex and I'm talking about all the ways that like all of these services create as many pain points as they try and solve. And she just looked at me and she was like, why are you not working on this business? Why are you not? And I was like, Oh, 
know. Somebody's, somebody's got to. Somebody's got, somebody's, somebody's got to because there's too many people. And now with the internet and now with online auctions, and there's so many different platforms and so many different ways, like not just eBay, which was kind of like the first, but there's so many different ways for people now to sell goods over the internet. There has to be a way that provides a more confidence to the buyer and be more ease to the auctioneers and the auction companies that really kind of levels the playing field. Um, and so it's like, all right, now, now's the time to go wading into that deep dive of like whiteboarding out this like Sherlock Holmes red line kind of like maze. Um, and I'm really excited by that because there is so much like innovation and so much tech development in Chicago or Madison, but Madison's such a perfectly located spot. Um, but yeah, like even the auction that's happening tomorrow in Minnesota, I'm going to support them remotely hmm. while they're selling classic cars. And so I made a comment to the auctioneer, like they're, they're like right on the border of Minnesota, Iowa and Wisconsin, about two and a half, three hours West of Madison. And I was like, Oh, I love that state. I'm really thinking about moving. He was like, move. I would hire you full time tomorrow. Move, come work for me. And I was like, hold up. I, I will, I will work with you. You got to play harder to get. <laughs> I will freelance for you. But like, no, no, I'm, yeah. I'm now the master of this. And again, yes. all of those things were lessons, whether they be cosmic, karmic, like deep life changing lessons to learn where I no longer walk into spaces and ask if it's okay for me to belong, which tracks mm-hmm. all the way back to the cafeteria at the former Dover high school where I could only eat lunch with my four friends. If one of them was sick because yeah. you couldn't push two tables together and so like, those were things that I had to, I had to learn and I had to come with tr- to terms with. And if it takes 30 years, like better well, 30 years instead of 50 years. You're um, describing a process that, I mean, it reminds me that it's something that I, th- I thought a lot about during the pandemic, but it's a quote from Warren Buffett. It's a, it's a sort of ideal or ethos around investing, but I, I feel like it's just in general life good advice is it's be greedy when other people are scared and be scared when other people are greedy. Yeah. And the last two years was a moment when everybody was scared. Yeah. And I, you know, and myself included, and I'm going to, I don't want to speak for you, but I'll, I'm sure you were in that boat too. And I kept having to remind myself like, okay, this is also an opportunity I'm probably never going to have. There's never going to be a point in time where everybody in the world is on their heels a little bit. So what, not what is the way I can take advantage of them, but what is the way I can take advantage of that? Yeah. For good. And you revamping your business. So percussion has had to revamp our business model in many respects. Um, It's, and we're now sort of like that window of whatever, not now, not everybody's on their back heel. A lot of us are back sort of up and figuring things out. And that moment, that window is closing. And there's a little part of me there that I'm just going to be honest, where I'm just like a little reminiscent of that time when you could truly re-envision everything. Yeah. You know, and and be like, well, fuck it. It's all blown up. Now what do I want to do? Like that, that I, in hindsight for yeah. me is something I, I don't want to take lightly or take for granted as I move forward because I want – it was a it was a really exciting thing, oddly, to be like, yeah, 
nobody can stop me. Nobody can start me. You know, like yeah. it's like, you know, it's all on me. And that was, that was nice. Well, and I yeah. feel like for you, so percussion is a musical entity that kind of stands without peers because there's no one else that's doing what you do, how you do it necessarily in your, in your sphere. Like I'm sure there are other percussive groups, but like when I'm like, Oh, look at what you're doing. Look at the, like, positive work that you're doing, look at the performances you're doing, look at the way that you're lifting up other composers and other musicians to come in and partner with you. Like for me, the model had always been you're in, like when we had second street interiors, right. You had competition, mm-hmm. Andries, Williams, wait, whoever wayside fit. Like you were always in competition, like coming into business at like the dawn of the Instagram age, like I'm not an Instagram girl. Like I don't care about making it filtered so that it looks like you bought it at Target. I don't care about the hype around it. Mm-hmm. I care about the authenticity and the history of it. Like my my vibe to that is different. But as I've learned that like I carry this sense of belonging and home with me. And if it's secure in me, I don't care how other people, like I want other people to receive me, but I'm not begging them to validate me. Like now, right, you can walk through the world and do whatever, because my mom had always said this, they can't be you and you don't want to be them. And I could like repeat that like a mantra all the time. You could be a very good therapist, too, if you wanted to be. Thank you. That was because that's literally what my therapist said said to me before I talked to you. She was just like you got to have home within you. Like she was saying all the same shit. No, you were dude, saying, like, you I'm know, not like, kidding. We're talking like hypnotherapy, deep yeah. diving into spirituality, like um, inner child work, shadow work, whatever, like all of this being like amalgamized and finally coming together and being like baked in heartache. And the very thing you didn't want to have happen, happen like on the other side of that fear, right? Like Will Smith said that when he was talking about like skydiving in Dubai, like you're afraid up until the point that you step, right? You, you only feel stuck. Like being stuck is a decision. Like you choose to feel stuck. The minute you act, you prove to yourself that you're no longer stuck and it doesn't matter. Like running into Wes at a diner. Maybe I had like my friend who was traveling with me goes the panic on your face was very intense for like 10 seconds. And she was like, then you were you again. And I was like, yeah, I was. It's one of the, it's one of the things when I think about like, you know, for me, I have a lot of anxiety and issues. And so like, I not like stage fright, but just sort of like, like when I'm not active, I get like, (gasps) like, and I just, it drives me crazy. And you know, uh, but the advice I get sometimes is like, you know, you think you can't bear anxiety, but when you think that, remember you are actively bearing it it. right then. Like you're actually, you're doing it. You can bear it because you're doing it. And once you sort of are aware, like it's like holding 300 pounds over your head and like, and then being like, I can't hold 300 pounds over my head. You're holding 300 pounds. Except I'm doing it right now. (laughs) You know, maybe don't do that all the time, but like it is, it's a way being like, I can't bear this is a way to get out of, of something or to feel like you're getting out. But it's like, no, if I just sit for another five seconds. I've borne it for five more seconds. Oh, I'm still anxious. Let yeah. me sit for two more seconds. Look, I did it for two more seconds. You know, like, yeah. and that there's a, there's a training there that I have to remind myself of like, yeah. like lifting weights, like going for a walk, like hopefully eating better. You know, like there's things I have to remind myself of what feels good in the moment and what is actually bet what's actually good in the moment. Um, 
on that note, Adair, I have robbed you of an hour and a half of your time. It's totally fine. I'm going to leave you from one anxious person. Holy God, crap. People from home are like messaging and I'm so sorry that those alerts are. No, it's fine. It's fine. So, so when I, in this heartbreak and whatever else, I, I have a good friend who's a hypnotherapist and I like messaged him and he was like, it can absolutely work for you, whatever. And, um, I did like five sessions, right? I did five sessions of hypnotherapy. Nathan's amazing. Again, through Zoom, he's in Virginia. Zoom was such a blessing for that, but he, he gave me the most amazing, I call them the four questions, right? And those four questions are, what am I doing? What do I want to do? How am I feeling? How do I want to feel? How do I want to feel in this moment? And by at any moment when I feel overwhelmed or I feel anxious or I feel like it can't be done, I stop and make myself go through those four questions. What am I doing? I'm sitting on my truth. I'm not talking to someone who crossed a boundary. I'm playing the peacemaker. I'm making myself small to keep the peace. I'm, I'm bearing this. I need to tell them that what they did hurt me and that while I can acknowledge it, they need to know what am, how do I feel? I'm feeling really anxious. I'm feeling completely concerned about what's coming or the move or telling my, you know, my mom's like, are you really going to leave me? And I was like, well, I'm not leaving you. I'm just going to go build the life that I want to have. And like, we're not going to gray gardens it in Madison. Love you. Smooches. Right. How am I feeling? How do I want to feel? And by reshifting those questions, I then can take the power in myself to see where I need to act instead of just getting caught in that loop of thoughts where I just want to think about things and overanalyze the things and I don't want to actually put them into motion. Mm-hmm. At some point, I've learned that the integration for me comes into giving myself time to rest and really quit that hustle and grind lifestyle. And I see how damaging that was to both my psyche and my soul. But at the same time, by shifting it to, I am the ma- I am the captain of my ship. I'm the master of my fate. By acknowledging that I have it inside me to do it, and I get to choose where I put that energy now, it it has been revolutionary. So, am I bummed? Like, am I wistful for that relationship? Yeah. Did I miss having a storefront and getting to pour the best of myself into the visual side of it? Yeah. Do I have immense gratitude for this crazy little town and all of the T County people? I do. Mm-hmm. But I mm-hmm. am I ready to be like, all right, y'all. Peace. Peace. <laughs> yes. And that's yeah. that's a hard time coming, but yeah. Yeah. it's fought for. So well, thanks for this. Yeah, we're, on that note. We're, we're to we're, steal we're, an hour and thirty-three minutes of your life talking sorry, about no, dead no, no, no. Well, hashtag dead that- people things. <laughs> I want to see that that handle go up here sooner than later, Adair. Right. Uh, well, on that note, just before we wrap up, where where can folks find you if they if they want to learn more about what it is you do exactly? Where where can sure. they look you up? Um. So there's a web there's a website that hasn't been updated. Uh, mm-hmm. It still says uh, visit my brick and mortar in downtown Dover. That's not there. Uh, but you can find me online at aliceadair.com. Uh, you can also find me on Facebook if you want to like check out a virtual auction. Um, we have a Facebook group called Antique Collective Auctions, Antique Collective Auctions. Um, so it's a private group on Facebook so that people don't snoop and see like what you're buying or how much you're spending. Um, but yep, there's like 1600 people across the country that hang awesome. out with me once or twice a week. And you got a little mafia. Something. Yeah. It's the, we, they need a nickname. They don't have a nickname. 
Um, but yeah, so I have business partners in Worcester that they run. So they run auctions. I run auctions. We usually ship all together. Um, they had major storm damage from the derecho. I think that's how you say it. They came through the area. Um, so they've kind of been off for a couple of weeks while they get their property cleaned back up and power restored. Um, but yeah, I sell vintage and antique goods just about every week of my life. And I'm content with that to have like days and times open where I don't know that I could go back to a traditional. Well, that's, like, that's an important. That's an important thing to learn about yourself too. There is something about like, you know, you, you wake up one day feeling like you're a brick and mortar person and then you sort of realize that everything is a sandcastle. Like, yeah. you know, yeah, just cause you, your mom owned that building or you, you, you were in that building for a long time doesn't mean it's yours yeah. and that it's permanent, you know, yeah. like, you know, you can build, you think what you have is, is solid until COVID. Like I posted something around COVID where I was like, I didn't realize I was building sandcastles right next to the shore. Yeah. Like that. I, no one told me that's what I was doing. And now I'm like a little more careful moving forward of like, A, maybe not assuming I can build solid structures, but just knowing that it's actually not permanent is is something that was, was like, oh, I need to learn that. And that was that was really helpful to um, to have gone through that. Uh, Adara, thank you so much for your time. Thank you I so really much, Josh. Appreciate you. Love you. Love you too. Stay, stay healthy. And we'll talk to you later. All right. Bye. <laughs> See you there. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. This podcast is brought to you by Liquid Drum, liquiddrum.com down in Waco, Texas. Uh, my good friend Todd Meehan runs an amazing percussion company down there. Great merch, great content. Check him out, liquiddrum.com. Also, Kyle Dunleavy, dunleavypans.com, D-U-N-L-E-A-V-Y pans.com. Kyle Dunleavy makes and builds all the steel drums that I perform and teach on uh, in so percussion as well as at NYU and Princeton. Uh, he's an amazing, amazing tuner builder, um, just a really nice guy, very dependable. Check him out. If you are interested at all in steel pan advocacy, uh, want to learn more about the goings-on uh, in pan in Brooklyn, check out paninmotion.com. My good friend Kendall Williams, uh, Jerry Guy, Trisha Guy, and uh, Arisha John run an amazing organization called paninmotion.com. Check him out. And finally, Aleandre Mirage runs an amazing uh, clothing apparel company in Brooklyn that is steel pan-centric. You can check him out at mangochowclothing.com. I own a bunch of his shirts. They're amazing, very stylish, uh, beautiful, beautifully made. Check them out, mangochowclothing.com. Okay, hope you're well. Talk to you soon. Bye.